Good morning. Well, this is it. This is uh, the last morning in the little, this little powerhouse of a book uh, called First John. And uh, what a joy it has been to walk through it. What a ride. We're, but we're at the end. So the content of the book is done. And we have kind of the, the postscript. This is John's PS, if you will. Uh, but unlike several of the New Testament epistles, John is going to sprint to the finish. Uh, there's no wind down, no personal farewells. He's just going to cram as much as he can into these final verses, these final sentences. And so let's listen to the apostle Jesus loved uh, one more time as he exhorts us from his letter. So let's stand together uh, as we honor the reading of God's word. First John chapter five, and we'll start in verse 13. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us whenever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit a sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Would you pray with me? Father, would, would you lead us today into the way of truth? And by your spirit, would you reveal in our hearts what is true about your son? And would you lead us to the worship of his name, the one that is above every name. And Father, would you help us to follow you? Would you give us confidence and remind us of how great your grace is to us? And would that, would that help us to walk in the eternal life that is ours in Christ? We love you. We need this today in Christ's name, amen. Well, toddlers and teenagers have several things in common. Experienced parents, uh, you know this. They're messy, they stink, and they're strangely confident. Uh, just about the same, right? Um, now, don't get me wrong, I, I love being a parent to both, I have had toddlers um, and now teenagers, and, and I, re I remember being a teenager, and so I, I remember that I knew pretty much everything. Um, but false confidence is almost always so unappealing, right? And it's almost so unappealing that true confidence almost gets thrown under the bus with it. In fact, these days in our, in our post-Christian, basically agnostic culture, where it's arrogant to say that you know anything with certainty, one of the most socially uncouth traits is confidence. Who are you to say what's true? And in fact, not knowing is often more praiseworthy than knowing. 
But the kind of confidence that John is describing is is not the opposite of humility. This knowing is not a self-boasting, but a Christ-boasting. Proverbs says that the righteous are as bold as a lion. The New Testament writers implore us to, to come boldly. Where? Before the throne of grace, Hebrews. This, this is not, I am confident because I have such a great faith. This is, I'm assured because Jesus is sure. And for John, confidence, assurance, it's been a mega theme throughout uh, this whole letter. We've seen the primary themes, right? That, that God is light, calling us to walk in the light with him. A life of confessing our sin, of, of walking in righteousness. And that God is love, that he laid down his life. He, he first loved us and now he calls us to love each other. And this is the way, the way of light and love that the one who is born of God is to live. So, but what's John's aim? Lawson ended with this last week, verse 13. This is the purpose statement of the book of John. He says in verse 13, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know. He wants us to be sure, to be confident. This is why he wrote the letter. He isn't just writing to make you smarter, but that you would be convinced that you have, of what you have in Jesus and that you'd walk confidently in it. Why do we, why do we need confidence? You probably feel it. This is it's what we want. We, we want to know that when we step out, that the Lord is with us, that he will meet us in this life. John isn't preaching to people who don't believe in Jesus. That's what he wrote his gospel for. But his letter is so that people who do believe in Christ will now walk confidently in the life that is theirs in Jesus. False teachers had questioned this as we saw in the letter, but now John wants to resettle it. So as he wraps up today, he's gonna show us this confident life. And then we're gonna look at four things that I think he wants us to gain that John doesn't want us to forget. Number one, don't forget God hears you. Don't forget to pray for your brothers. Number three, don't forget God keeps you. And fourth, don't forget what is real. Number one, don't forget that God hears you. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Lacking confidence in the true life we have in Christ will devastate our prayer life. But when we know we're alive in him, we will dare to call on the name of the Lord. Why? Because we know he hears us. Do you, do you believe that God loves you? That he lavished his love on you so that you could be called his child? If so, ask for what you need. If you know someone is trustworthy, you depend on them. And if you believe that God is your perfect father, you ask things of him. And what more could we ask for? Calvin said this, he said, were, were we driven away from an access to God? Nothing could make us more miserable. But on the other hand, provided this asylum be open to us, we should be happy even in extreme evils. Nay, this one thing renders our troubles blessed because we surely know that God will be our deliverer and relying on his paternal love towards us, we flee to him. That is confidence. 
that the God of the universe listens to me. And what sort of prayers do we see that he answers? John says, anything according to his will. And what a relief that is, right? Praise God that he does not indulge my stubborn will or my easily deceived heart. If he did, who knows what sort of things over the course of my life he would have granted to me. But as our hearts are shaped according to his will, he hears us. This isn't an I can get whatever I want sort of confidence. I'm pretty confident in the vending machine back there uh, that if I go put my $1.50 in after the service and hit the right buttons, Skittles, right? And that's probably about it. I think that's about all this vending machine got, Skittles. Um, but that, that's, that's, that's what you're gonna get, right? John, John's saying our confidence, isn't mere, our confidence isn't merely in outcomes. It is in that God hears us um, and that he will grant his need, our need according to his will. If I, if I hit those buttons and say pizza, vending machine's gonna say, sorry, Skittles, that's all we got, man. Uh, but that, that's our, our life now, filled with the Spirit, life, the life of Christ being lived through me so that even as I ask, my tastes are being changed by my new life. My goals are different. My requests are being transformed. This is sanctification. This is maturity. If you ask someone headed for a hike, Say, hey, I can, I'm gonna bring you something over for your hike. I can either bring you socks or cotton candy. Um, I'm 41 years old. I'll pretty much take socks anytime. Um, but ask my six-year-old, well, cotton candy, why, what else would, could, would we need on the hike? Uh, when Christ lives in you and you know you have life in him, your thoughts and your desires change. Your requests are shaped by him now. And if you ask, according to his will, as he shapes you, he hears us. But he doesn't just hear, look at verse 15. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. The Lord loves to grant the requests of his children. If my kids ask if they can have time with dad, they can be confident in the answer. God, God is like this, but way better. So, so why don't we pray? If you are his child and he, he wants you to be confident to ask for things, then why in the world don't we ask? I, I want to submit it, it's, it's one of two things and there's probably more. Uh, but number one, I think our theology gets in the way. As, as reformed folks, we, we, we strongly believe in God's sovereign hand over our lives. We, we trust him. We believe he's in control of the universe down to the smallest molecule. But then, so we may think, why ask? What's the point? God is in control. He, he's gonna accomplish his purpose anyway. Why ask for, for things? And, and to that, I wanna pastorally say, stop it. <laughs> Don't let one thing that you know about God obliterate another truth about what you know of him. Yes, God is sovereign, but in his sovereign plan, he has said, I wanna listen to you. He cares what you need and he chose you in him before the foundation of the world so that he might be a father to you. So ask him for things, go to him. It glorifies him to answer you. And the second reason I, I think sometimes that we don't, it, it, we struggle to pray is because we just don't know the Father. We, we don't study him. 
We don't know his kindness. If children never ask their earthly father for things, there's a breakdown, right? Either they don't know him or he has failed them or or failed to reassure them, failed to love and provide. Maybe there's some sort of broken trust. Your heavenly father is perfect. He's, He's perfectly trustworthy. Jesus says, if earthly fathers give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly father give when you ask? Do you believe that the heart of the father is to give, give you what you ask for? Study him, know him. You can trust him. You may say, well, well I ask God for things regularly and he doesn't give them to me. Sometimes he never answers. So is John lying? Is God really not there? Or worse yet, is he there, but he's, he isn't able? Or even worse, he doesn't want to answer my prayer? And these are, these are legitimate questions. But notice what Jesus says. He hears us and we have what we ask. Not we will have. This is incredible. Our requests of God are not heard eventually. They're not put into a queue. They are heard immediately. And we don't have what we ask one day. We have now. How is this possible? Almost every prayer seems to be answered later. Or maybe even not at all. And the answer is we have to look to the faithful example of the one who prayed with perfect humility and perfect confidence. Jesus himself, he gives us the example, not once, but twice. First, he taught us to pray. And what was part of his prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done. This is a confident prayer. But not only did he teach it, he modeled it. In the garden with impending torture and execution weighing heavily down on him, he prayed, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And yet even still, death came. The father heard the son, but still suffering and pain still followed. But how, how did Christ's plea end? Father, not my will, but yours be done. John Stott says, says it this way. He says, every prayer is a variation on the theme, thy will be done. In all of our asking, this is our confidence Confidence that he hears us, that he loves us, and that he is good. So go to him. He will hear you. It may not look like you think it will. It may not come the way that you think it will, but he will hear you. Next, he also changes who we pray for. So number two, don't don't forget, pray for your brothers. Verse 16, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. So John extends our confidence to praying, uh, not just for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters. Uh, If Christ has given you life, Uh, then you're no longer preoccupied with just your stuff, with just your little corner of the world. He makes you into someone who wants life for those around you. So when you see your brother, your sister in sin, do you pray for them? Do you eagerly, eagerly desire good for them? 
and pray and, and God will work. Okay, but what, what is John talking about? So we just said a lot of interesting things in this passage, right? Uh, what is a sin that doesn't lead to death? And what is a sin that leads to death? Uh, first, this must have been some sort of language. This must have been language his readers would have understood, uh, certainly more than we do. Um, many commentators have offered the tried and true theological answer of, we don't know for sure. Um, so there's, that's always good. Uh, some, some see this, this sin that leads to death as a, a particular egregious type of sin uh, that can't be forgiven. Others would say maybe this is a sin that actually results in death. If you remember Ananias and Sapphira, right? They, they sinned and their sin caused their death on the spot as they lied to the apostles. But, but it seems most likely to me that John's describing someone who seemed like a brother or a sister, but that they're, by their full-blown rejection of the Lord, like, like many of the false teachers that we've already encountered in this book, uh, that they have so firmly rejected and blasphemed Christ that their hearts will never be turned. So, so who, who do we pray for? Is John really saying, don't pray for those who've walked away? Uh, for false prophets, for false teachers. I, I don't think that's what John's saying. I think he's just acknowledging that there are some who, who reject God who will never be turned and who will never be restored. But I, I believe that love compels us uh, not to assume that anyone has gone so far as to have no hope for repentance. If such people are out there, how would I even know who they were? There are many people in my flesh that I would have written off years ago those that the Lord saved, who I never would have thought. Look at the, the Apostle Paul. He's a prime example. Kanye West, we, we see stories like this. I mean, we're still, we're still praying for Kanye, right? Uh, death row conversions that happen regularly. E even false teachers who repent and embrace the gospel. Spurgeon once commented that it would be nice if, if all who were the, the, the chosen of God had a chalk stripe on their back. Um, so that we could lift up their shirt and look and make sure and go, oh, yep, uh, I'm gonna preach the gospel to this one um, not, and not bother with the others. But that's not how it is, right? Uh, so, so let's not proceed as those who have the spiritual eyes to know who will turn to Jesus, who will repent. Let's just share the gospel and hope. But verse 27, uh, uh, verse 17, sorry, is great. All righteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Isn't this an underrated verse? Let's just think about this just for a second. This is strange language, but it's an underrated verse. Aren't you thankful that there is sin that doesn't lead to death? This strange little sentence packs like a gospel punch. All unrighteousness is sin, and yet our sin does not eternally destroy us. Why? Because of Jesus. So if you have experienced the grace of God and you see your brother walking in sin, one who knows the grace of God, one who by faith is a child of God, pray for them. What's your gut reaction when you see your brother or your sister walking in sin? Do you run in like a spiritual superhero? believing that you and only you can save them. You know who's good at rushing in and saving? Jesus, the Messiah. You know who's not a Messiah? You, me. So let's go to him.
Maybe you don't run in. Maybe you just talk to your spouse, to a friend. Can you believe what so-and-so is doing? What are they thinking? What a shame. I'm so disappointed. You know who's really good at standing on the outside and talking? Gossips, Pharisees, busybodies. Or maybe you condemn them. You remind them how disappointing they are. You let them know how many people they've let down, how shameful their sin is. You know who's good at this sort of accusing and condemning? The great accuser himself, Satan. This is what he does. But what does John say? Back in verse 16, he says, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him. What if we really believe that God would grant life to our Christian friends who are walking in sin, who are hurting others and themselves? What if our lives were marked by going to the Father? Lord, you know this person. You know them more than I do. You know their pains. You know their hurts. You know their rebellion. And you know the destruction they're bringing to their life and to others. Do you think maybe, just, just maybe, the Lord might be the best one to handle it? Lord, would you grant them life by your great grace? Would you, would you wake them up with the same grace that you've woken me up and brought me to my senses a hundred times? Would you help them to walk in the light? Would you grant them repentance and fellowship with you, Lord? Would you restore them? What grace might we experience if instead of trying to be a Messiah or a gossip or an accuser, if we just prayed? The Lord is promising that by such prayers, he will bring life. I can't grant life, he can. And even more than that, what if when we prayed prayers like that, maybe when we stood up off of our knees, maybe we would be better suited to talk to them, eager to confess the planks in our own eyes as we come to correct and restore a sister, a brother. Yes, we correct. Yes, we rebuke. But first, we pray. This is gospel friendship, gospel brotherhood, sisterhood. May this define how we approach one another, how we speak to one another, and foremost, how we pray for one another. John wants you to remember something else. Number three, don't forget God keeps you. Just as he grants life to the people that you pray for, his grace keeps you. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Wait, <laughs> didn't we just talk about sin that doesn't lead to death? So now he's saying a true child of God won't sin. Okay, so, so we've heard this a lot through, through this book, right? Any child of God, one who's been brought from death to life is no longer a slave to sin. But does this mean that Christians no longer sin? Of course not. In fact, in chapter one, John tells us, anyone who says he doesn't sin is a liar. But, but this is referring to, to consistent sinful behavior. So of course a Christian will sin, but a Christian will never make light of sinning and he'll never be content to persist in it. So he, but here's, here's the twist. So the, the second half of verse 18, but the one who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. So listen to these two phrases. This is verse 18. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin, 
but the one who is born of God keeps him. So just some, here's some nerd stuff, some Greek stuff. All right, so John says, born of God in the first half. It, he's, it's, this is the, the perfect participle. I had to actually look that up. The perfect participle. Uh, he, he's, using, he's using it as a descriptor. This is the type of person this is. A born of God type of person. He, we might say, this is someone who is a born again person. Someone that God has saved. But in the second half, he refers to the one born of God in the aorist sense. This is something that has happened. This is him who was born of God. In fact, some of the English translations, even both, both current, modern and, and ancient translations, uh, will, will help us here by saying, the one who was begotten of God keeps him so that the evil one doesn't touch him. There's an interesting play on words happening, right? The one who was born of God keeps him so that the evil one won't touch him. So what or who are we talking about? As a Christian, you are born of God. You're born, you've, you've been born again. You're now in Christ. But, but the reveal is, yes, we were born of God, but there is one who is truly the begotten of God. Jesus Christ, the begotten one. He is the true one. And he keeps all others who are born of God. Jesus is the massive ship in the ocean with lots of little ships inside. Sure, you're sailing the ocean, but the true ship, the real vessel is doing the work because you're in the ship. And because of that, his victory is yours. We are more than conquerors in him. This is not about your sinfulness or your sinlessness. It's about Christ's sinlessness and he is protecting you. And this is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John 17. Uh, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed this for you. He said, Holy Father, protect them by your name that you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. In verse 12, he says, while I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you've given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost. A couple verses later, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And not only did he pray for it, but he accomplished it for us. Even still, he keeps us. He protects us. He guards us from the evil one. He even taught us to ask for this. In the Lord's prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. We have a real enemy who wants to snatch you out of God's hand, who wants to pull you out of Christ. But Jesus says, no way, they're with me. He looks to our enemy and says, I will never leave them. I will never forsake them. To come to the Father, they had to come through me. And if you wanna harm them, you'll have to go through me and that's not happening. The whole world may be under the sway of the evil one, but not you. Beloved, the Lord has you. He says to us, you are mine. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then listen to how he closes. Number four, don't forget what is real. Verse 20, and we know that the son of God has come 
and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You know God because he came to you. Just as we sang earlier this morning, he came for us. There's nothing in you that made you go to him. There was no way to get to him unless he came. And Jesus has shown us the Father. We have seen the Father because to know the Son is to know the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Do, do, you, do you doubt how true he is? Go to him today. Don't just listen to me. Don't just listen to someone else talk about him. If you're born again, have confidence. He is yours and he is the true one. He is no more or no less real than any human relationship that you have. He's not simply the main topic of our studies and songs and of our gatherings. Jesus can be your closest friend. The one who is closer than a brother. Maybe you don't know him like that. Look at the person sitting next to you He's just as real as that person. Compared to Jesus, everything else is counterfeit. We must go to him. He is real. He is the true bread, John 6. The world says whatever makes you happy, it, the world will feed you anything you want, a 24-7 buffet of the senses. But truth says every other bread is like ash in your mouth. Come to the true bread. Feast on him, friends. Delight yourself in the only one who satisfies. He's also the true vine, John chapter 15. The world says you need to blossom, to grow, to find your true self. But the truth says every other way of growing, every other way of blossoming, of becoming a better you is just another way of dying. Abide in the true vine and live. Wake up tomorrow and connect to the vine in his word and prayer and grow. And Jesus is the true God, the true life. He is no fake, no imitation. He is the real thing. The world says there is no God, but we can know him. Jesus, very God of very God, proceeding from the Father. To know him is to know the one who made Jupiter. To know him is to know, to know the one who, who came up with the idea of DNA. The one who, who, whose oxygen is in your lungs and the one who made your lungs to actually know what to do with it. And right now, he knows you. He knows you so well. He knows the worst parts about you. He knows your biggest fears. He knows the darkest things in your heart. And, and yet, he's not moody and aloof like the Greek gods. No, even though he, he knows you, he still came for you. And he loves you. He's keeping you. He won't let the evil one touch you. Praise God. Believe it. Be confident in it. So that's it, right? That's 1 John. What a way to end the letter. Sorry, I can't even really pretend like it's not, that it's over. Uh, 
one more verse, right? This is based, John's just basically going, um, well, here he is, verse 21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. What a fascinating way to end, fascinating way to end. It's like he just shouted, P.S., I got one more little thing here. This beautiful paragraph about the, 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 the true, what we know of the true God followed by, oh yeah, watch out for idols. Uh, but we need this, don't we? If there, if there is nothing greater, if there is nothing better, nothing truer, only one real fountain of life, then why would I ever worship something else? C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. You may have heard Calvin's famous words where he calls the human heart a perpetual idol factory. But, but you and I, we, we, don't, we don't need Calvin or C.S. Lewis to tell us this. Why? Because we know it. You know it. I know it. Even now, there are things in your mind and the joy of even thinking about them, dreaming of them, eclipses the joy of the truth found in the eternal beauty of Christ. Ross King, if you're not familiar with Ross King, is a musician. He has an incredible song called Clear the Stage where he says these lines. He says, anything I can't stop thinking of is an idol. Anything I want with all my heart is an idol. And so even as those who are saved by the eternal, from the eternal wrath of God, by a grace more amazing than we could imagine, to a position more lofty than we could dream, and oh yeah, we get to cry out to him, Abba, Daddy, Father, to the very one who flung galaxies into space, and he's gonna hear us. And despite all that, what makes our heart race? A full bank account. What really gets our emotions engaged? It's a hobby or, or a home improvement project, a college football team, perfect fajitas, or on the flip side, perfect abs. Or, or, or maybe... Maybe, you, can, you can guess which one for me. Uh, or maybe, maybe it's the pursuit of the perfect friend or spouse or even the approval of our social media feeds. And John says, watch out. Why? Because he knows us. Because he's one of us. The prophet Isaiah describes this so perfectly. This is one of my favorite passages about idolatry. He's talking about those who are pursuing and worshiping actual wooden idols. He says this in Isaiah 44, in verse 19, says, no one comes to his senses. No one has the perception to say, and then just a few lines down, he says, should I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? What is the lie for you? What is the lie that you cling to? The thing that you can't put down? That thing that you can't quit? That thing that draws you and your family away from Jesus, but you partake again anyway? That sinful habit you've tried to change for months? or years, and yet here you are again, locked in the same pattern. 
Or maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's 2020. 2020 is the year of crushing idols. What have you lost this year that, that has left you in despair? What has COVID taken away that has robbed you of joy? Maybe, maybe it's a job that's teetering on the edge. Maybe it's friendships that have waned or kids' opportunities that have vanished. Maybe the political climate or, or even having to wear a mask has caused you to feel distraught and unsettled. This is why we need confidence in Jesus. He is more real, more satisfying than any job, than any hobby, than any position or friendship. So let's lay down our idols. Let's boldly come to him. He's no empty cistern. He invites you today, come feast, come drink. Redeemer family, may the Lord bless and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you so that no other blessing will satisfy, no other keeping will do, and no other face will warm you with its light. Let's pray together. Father, would you, would you help us? Would you give us such Christ-centered boldness and confidence that the life that has been promised to us by you has been guaranteed for us by your son and, and that it has been sealed by your spirit. And would the great joy of what is ours in Christ, would it, would it just cut the legs out of every other joy and would we see all of, other, all of life's other joys through the lens of the beautiful blessing that is Christ and Christ alone? And so would you lead us in this? We need you. Would you help us? In Christ's name, amen.